Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Merry Christmas, Wendy. Merry Christmas, Mike. All right. We're actually talking to you guys a couple of days before Christmas, but since this will be released on Christmas Day, hope all of you guys are having an awesome holiday as well. Yes. And you know what makes me think about Christmas? What? The cold. (laughs) Yeah, it's that time of year. Yep. And today we're talking about a people that live um, in what we usually think of as... Uh, you know, the edge of civilization, the edge of the world. Yeah, and, where it's very, very cold. Yes, and we're talking about Siberia, everyone. <sighs> and, you know, when I'm looking at a map and I'm thinking about Siberia and where it is and everything like that in the world, I think we forget that, I mean, number one, that Russia is so huge. <laughs> it is huge. And number two, that, that so much of it's in Asia and so much of it's in the far north. Yeah. So the area we're talking about today is above Japan. It's above the Korean Peninsula. It's all the way up there. I mean, Santa actually lives in Siberia. (laughs) (laughs) All right. No, I mean, but the thing is, so talking about this particular people, the Olchi people, and they almost all live in this small district of Siberia in Russia, Gabarskov Krai. I don't know Ooh. if I'm saying that right, but um, you probably have only seen it if you've ever played Risk or whatever. No. It's the only time you've, <laughs> you've even looked at this area of the world. But yeah. it's fascinating. And the woman we're talking today, uh, Jan Van Eiselstein, she has kind of taken it upon herself to, there's only like 2,500 Ulchi people left. So she's taken it upon herself to write about them and kind of remember them. Am I saying it right or... Yeah, immortalize maybe or <laughs> yeah, and especially I mean none of these things have been down in English before, so this is the first time wow. anyone has ever That's like amazing translated it for a Western audience, and uh, she's done that in her new book, which is called Spirits from the Edge of the World: Classical Shamanism in Ulchi Society. Hmm. It's not so academic that it's hard to read, and if you guys are interested about like where uh, the idea of the shaman comes from, and we'll talk about this in the interview, this is definitely the original place it all comes from. We get the word from the Ulchi Society, the word shaman, and it's much more than you know the idea that we think about like the medicine man or something like that in the society. So when I think of the word shaman, I mean, I always think of a medicine man. You think of a tribe and you think about this dude who like is doing magic mushrooms and, you know, taking you on a spirit quest in these things. And uh, the shaman in the Ulchi society, it's much more integrated. uh, It's much more normal. I mean, Mm -hmm. in in there's, you know, it's just an everyday kind of thing. And um, that's what makes this society so fascinating because we have such a dichotomy in the West between the spiritual and the non-spiritual. Like I would never even think about having like the priest I grew up with like over for dinner. Oh yeah. You'd be like, what? Oh, can we not swear at dinner now? Or, (laughs) you know, you'd be like worried about it. And in this society, it's just the shaman are much more integrated and it's, it's a very cool kind of thing. And, um, Jan has studied this for a long time. She first met them in the 1990s and she's taken it upon herself to translate this kind of stuff and get it out there. And we talked with Jan all about, the spirits from the edge of the world. We are here with Jan Van Eiselstein, who's just released an amazing book called Spirits from the Edge of the World, Classical Shamanism in Ulchi Society. Uh, She's an ethnographer who's done decades of research into this little known people. And I think you're going to enjoy what you hear today. Uh, How are you doing? And where are you? Um, I'm in Seattle, Washington. Okay. And is that where you're from originally? Uh, no, I grew up in Hawaii. Oh, man. As someone who grew up in a place with winter, I'm extraordinarily jealous, number one. <laughs> yeah, a great place to grow up, but trust me, you don't want to live there as an adult. Well, what I'm interested in is to go this deep inside a, you know, into the shamanism of a society and to get this interested in a people, what kind of inspired you to uh, study the Ochi so intensely? Well, uh, there were a couple of things. Uh, first of all, for many years, I owned a bookstore and gallery in the Seattle uh, metropolitan area. And after the fall of the Soviet Union, 
I was very lucky to have a gentleman who had come from Russia over to the United States. He was trying to set up an ethnographic collection between uh, a museum based in the Russian Far East and a local museum here in Seattle. Uh, he wasn't able to do so, but he came to my gallery. He set up his collection at my gallery and began to lecture about these people that he had worked with all of these years. And I had never heard of them. I thought they sounded fascinating. And I asked him when he returned to Russia, would he be willing to ask them if they would consider leaving their villages and coming to the United States for the first time. Now, you also have to remember, up until the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, citizens did not own their own passports. So this was the first time that you know people were allowed to travel outside of their country. So he went back. He asked them if they would be willing to come to the United States and lecture on their culture. They agreed. And so back in 1994, we were able to get them out of their villages and into uh, the United States for the first time in their lives. So now, for most of people probably listening to this podcast, this is the first time, I mean, when uh, I read this book, this is the first time I had heard of the Ochi people and how fascinating they were. So um, I know it's it's hard to break down thousands of years of history into a minute, but for a quick primer on people who uh, aren't familiar, and the thing is, a lot of us, when we think of Siberia, we just think of jokes from Cold War movies, right? We think of like, this is the place where somebody gets sent if they're bad in the Russian army. And we you, know, you, you have a hard time thinking about this place that feels like the edge of the world uh, where these people are from. So let's get a quick uh, history of the Ulchi people uh, as you know it. Okay. Well, you know, the Ulchi, the Ulchi live in what in the United States we would call Eastern Siberia uh, in, and they have, you know, they can trace their roots back to their Mesolithic uh, Neolithic ancestors. They come from a language group, uh, the Manchutunga-speaking language group, and these are the people that actually gave the word shaman to the world. They're a very small group. Uh, they're probably going to disappear in this century uh, just because of the numbers racket, so to speak. There's less than 2,500 uh, they don't intermarry usually outside of their culture, not because they're xenophobic in any way, but they found that uh, when they marry with other people, say Russians or people from Georgia or, or other areas, there's too many challenges, there's too many problems. So they'll marry within their own with a, within their own tribal group or with a local tribal group. Uh, say somebody that doesn't belong to their culture, but somebody that does belong to their language group. And so also real quick, like when I was doing research on this, number one, I mean, the Ochi people, when a lot of us stereotypically think of Russians as just Eastern European looking, they're much more Asian. Yeah, uh, yes, absolutely. A actually, everyone from pretty much Western Siberia all the way to the coast of the Pacific are Asian looking in their appearance. And also what I thought was interesting was the fact that it seems like they can trace their roots into this particular area for like 7,000 years. Uh, actually, it's longer. There was a, a great new genetic study that just came out from the University of Cambridge, uh, and it has to do with biological anthropology, but they say that the Ulchi people probably, from from their DNA, haven't changed since their Mesolithic ancestors. And so that's like 10,000 years ago. Yes. Oh man. And to me, that's, I mean, unbelievable when you, I mean, I think that my family came over here, you know, 125 <laughs> years ago or something like that or, or less. And, you know, so many of us Americans have that immigrant experience and to think of a people so rooted in the land, they've been the same place uh, for, for 10 millennia, uh, just a little mind blowing, but that also means that they can have an incredibly rich culture to have developed over that course of time and that attached to the land. Uh, that's true. And you also have to remember the, the geographical location of where they live. Uh, they weren't invaded by anyone. 
Uh, it's a hard and harsh region to get to. Uh, the last person that came close to invading their area was Chinggis Khan, but he, since he was used to traveling on horseback through the the, the steppes of uh, of central. Asia, he couldn't get his horses or his men up into this almost jungle-like area known as the taiga, dense forest. So he tried he tried to conquer them, but he never did. So they were never conquered by any group due to their location, except when the Russians came over. And, and then that's a whole other story, but I came over and colonized the area. But what, you know, it's funny as we're saying, we're talking about Genghis Khan, and that's still like 700 years ago. And we're, that's just the late, this is the late period of their history. Right. You know? Right. Absolutely. So when you guys were bringing um, these people over, what was the first idea? Like some kind of, like us learning about the culture and things or kind of saving it? Or, you know, how did that go when they came over to the U.S. for the first time? Oh, there are many great stories around their first visit. But they originally came here, they taught, they gave lectures through the University of Washington, through the Burke Museum. They had uh, general workshops for the for the public through different venues. They came to speak about their culture and about their beliefs and about uh, their religious practices and shamanism. And so what kind of inspired you to be so interested in it that you're like, I gotta, I'm going to write a book about this. I'm going to teach class about this. You know, what was the impetus when you were like, I was, you were so blown away by what you had seen and heard that you wanted to make it part of your life's work? Well, yeah, I didn't expect it to be my life work, uh, Mike, but what I found to be very interesting, having grown up in Hawaii, I was uh, kind of schooled by friends and living there for a very long time into Taoism. And I have come to discover historically that, first of all, um, they are Taoist, and they're probably the people that Lao Tzu and Chuang Tzu alluded to as being the ancient people, uh, the, the wise people, excuse me, uh, the wise people of ancient times, the old, old Taoist bef- before it became a, a, a cult or a religion or or what whatever happened. As I said, there's a differentiation between religious Taoism and contemplative Taoism. For our listeners that might not be completely well-versed on Taoism, can you give a quick idea of the, the, what you're talking about and some of the similarities there? Well, um, they believe that nature is the greatest teacher. Uh, they're animist, so they believe that everything has consciousness, everything is alive, everything is self-aware, and that does include your refrigerator, your car, your microwave, your computer. The way my car acts, I'm sure it gets mad at me sometimes. <laughs> well, hopefully you're talking to it, Mike. Hopefully you're loving your car. But, I'm going to have to. But um, yeah, so they're, they're, they're pure animist as far as believing that everything is alive. They're also very biocentric in their approach to life. So they don't view humanity as the center of the universe. Uh, they believe that that everything has the right to exist and that, for example, the life of an animal is as valuable as the life of a human. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're like Jainists or anything, right? Well, they believe pretty, that if you no, were to fly. They're, no, they're, they're pretty close to Jainism. I mean, and I'm glad that you know about that culture. I would say that of all the more well-known religions in the world, they would be much more Jainist in their approach about, about, about uh, you know, not purposely going out and trying to destroy anything. I mean, they, they, so, I mean, they do eat, right? I mean, we all eat, but they view, you know, sure. they, they view nature, they, they don't have this view of the world as good and evil. They, okay. they view everything on, on this planet, everything in nature is either a predator or a prey. And we're all predators. And unfortunately, you know, in the world, 
humans aren't quite the prey they used to be with the killing off of all the animals uh, like bears and tigers and you know but you do hear though you do hear those stories people being eaten by sharks or a, you know grizzly attacks up in Alaska and, or even well, we've all heard of the Siberian tiger too right but there are very there 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 are very few of those left due to the poaching by the Chinese that live on the border. So, you know, this idea that the, um, you know, everything around us is alive, right. everything around us has a spirit and a consciousness. You know, it's funny when I think about that, I think about that in two ways. Number one, it feels like the most primitive, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but the most, like when you're first thinking about the world and like I was joking around, like my car, when it's upset at me or, you know, things like that won't start or my computer or when I have a bad day with electronics and nothing seems to work, it seems like it's doing it for a reason. You know, so we give that uh, anthropomorphism, what we consider to, to everyday objects, to everything. And that seems very non-21st century Western materialism because here we're like, no, there's random things that happen and the things that happen for a reason are, you know, very small. And, and then it also seems to be like the highest level of consciousness because then you realize that everything's interconnected. So at, at one end, it seems like it's, it's the first level when you look at the world and attribute reason to everything. And then you have this level that most of us in Western society are at where we're very, um, you know, there's this atheists and reality-based thinking and all that kind of thing, the way people talk. And then there's a level of saying that, well, there's something to the idea that we're all connected in the universe, and that's what we're trying to figure out. And my thoughts here seem to affect my car, and I don't know why, <laughs> but there's some reason it's there. So I always think animism is, it's like anarchy. It's both ends of the spectrum. And so I'm in, really interested in the kind of cosmology that uh, the Ulchi have developed over the, the millennia that they've been around. So can you kind of get into that a little bit? Okay, well, okay, I'm going to, yes, and, and I know it's very difficult for Westerners to, to grasp in a way, just because we have a very different view of reality. But, but I'm going to say, okay, say you were born into an Ulchi society, Mike, as an Ulchi child, as a child growing up, you're going to come to understand your parents, your elders, the first thing they're going to say to you is your number one teacher is nature. Nature is number one. Then comes your parents and your elders and members of the village or the community. By the way, dear child, the world is imbued with spirits. There are spirits around you all the time, spirits in your home. Uh, there are spirits, once you walk outside the front door of your home, there are spirits everywhere and they're watching you, and they're observing your actions, and they're very aware of you in the environment. So that's something, when you, when I talked to you earlier, I, I, I didn't talk to you, but we were emailing, and I was thinking about ghost hunting, right? And the ghost hunting that goes on in our Western world, um, it would be as if, that is only something that seems to fit into Western cosmology in regards to the idea of spirits or the other world. So if you were an Ulchi, you would grow up saying, okay, there are spirits around me all the time. They listen to me. They watch me. They, they note my actions in the world. I have to be aware of that at all times. Not not to a degree of being paranoid, but just it's like Santa Claus. Well, it's like you Halloween is every day, twenty four hours a day, right? It's like every day is Halloween. There are always spirits around you. They don't just come out at a certain date, or they just don't come out at night. And that there are so many different qualities of spirits, whether it's the spirit of a place or the spirit of the land or a, the spirit of a tree. Uh, the, the world is imbued with other conscious beings that you interact with all the time. I, I, there are parts of my book when I discuss that 
if an Ulchi hunter or uh, somebody that was going out to fish or hunt, if they are able to, you know, shoot shoot a deer with their bow and arrow or gather fish, it's not because necessarily of their skill. It's because they have lived a proper life. They have lived in accordance with the Tao. And uh, the spirits are sending to them the food and the, and, and the meat that they may need so that their family can survive. It's, it's this reciprocity. It's, it's this sense of the guest-host relationship that's the foundation and you talk about that a little bit in your book. We compare the Tao to the their is it is it say Ba? Yes, Ba. Uh huh. So the Ba, the idea that you know the the eat the everything that's around you at all time. Like the Ba describes everything, and at the same time, it can describe you know little things, and it, it's got that Taoist kind of flavor there. And so when we talk about you know what it is to lead a good life, and then you, you're rewarded for it in this world. You know, that's also a very, when you talk about cross connections between early Judaism is really about if you lead a good life according to, you know, according to the scripture and according to God, then you'll be rewarded in this life. While like Christianity is all about, well, let's talk about the next world. And so they already have this idea, like you're saying that if you live according to the Tao, you live a good life, um, you're the guest host relationship. So you're, you're, you're playing out the part correctly as a part of a guest in this world and maybe a host to other people. Um, then what's their opinion on, like we said, the, the next world is there, you know, what happens to people after they die? Well, there is no next world because they don't think in dualities. They, in their language, there's no, okay. In their language, I speak their language fluently. There is no, normal and paranormal. There is no the mundane world and the spiritual world. It's all here now. They don't make those distinctions. Um, Unlike Judeo-Christianity, which has a tendency to put humanity outside of nature, Mm -hmm. they see themselves as a part of nature. They don't even have the word artificial in their language. Like we use the word something is natural or something is man-made. They don't see that separation because they don't see that people are separate from nature. Therefore, everything is natural. The idea of living this good life, um, it's not as though they follow these rules. They Now, they do believe that human beings by nature are very good beings. Glad somebody believes that. Absolutely, by nature. And it's when someone, um, for some sort of reason, uh, falls short of that. Those are things that people in the community would, would talk about or ask to make corrections. But, the, you know, the golden rule, be a good person, uh, help other people, um, you know, always think of others. Uh, and it, but it doesn't come from this conscious need to to believe that you know it it, it it's not this conscious boy that's it I I'll end up getting off in some sort of existential philosophical that's all right it's not like Moses coming down from the mountain saying here's the rules go ahead and do it right they do it without even being aware of it. They're not good because they say it is important to be a good person. They're just good naturally. You know, Mike, you know, when they first got here, I, it, what blew my mind is that these people are so poor. They're so incredibly poor, the villages that they come from. And their first trip to the United States, and they did this you know, every time they would come here, we would be walking in Seattle somewhere, or we'd be going somewhere, and they would see somebody homeless. They would see somebody asking for funds, for for money. And it, they would just take out whatever they had and give it to these people, even though they, they would give them everything, even though they had nothing. 
And it wasn't out of, oh, aren't I a good person that I do this? It was just natural. So they had the kind of an, that, in, that instinctual uh, or, you know, an instinctual way of, you know, of their society, of living, of treating other people. And, you know, I'm interested a little bit in how you like met the shaman or, you know, even got that, you know, were you always somebody who was like, oh, that's a, it's a pretty cool thing. And the, you know, the idea of, uh, you know, in Hawaii, uh, oh, what's the word? I can't, there's a certain Hawaiian word, like, a, you know, the way of the huna. Right. Kind of thing of, you know, becoming some like a, a holy man or a holy person. Um, was that something you were always interested in? Or was that something by meeting them and talking to them, you're like, I got to know more about this? No, I was always I was always interested in that. Because for as I said, Mike, for many, many years, um, or for most of my life, Taoism has been a focus. For many years beside that, I was in a Tibetan monastery. Uh, in a Nyingma sect. So I had studied Tibetan Buddhism for a very long time. But um, it's always been something I was drawn to intellectually and philosophically. And so, okay, we all have this idea of what a shaman is in our head. You know, I think everybody first thinks about as Hollywoodized as possible. Um, you know, that's the first idea you go, you think you have a headdress or a guy, you know, from there's that scene in Serpent and the Rainbow where he does the, the stuff in South America <laughs> and he goes crazy. And so you get this idea of meeting with somebody like that and talking to the medicine man, that kind of cliche. Uh-huh. So, you know, how would you define a shaman and as, as and also as the Ulchi would define a shaman? Well, they would say it's a natural phenomenon. Uh, they would also say that, you know, everybody is kind everybody's kind of their own little shaman themselves which i find to be curious it, it it's it's something that has to do with your ability to interact with the spiritual world and i'm just going to use that word even though they don't have the word spiritual i'm using that to make a distinction because i'm talking to people in the western culture right, right. it's but these people that have been doing this work, been in contact with spirits for a very, very long time, when you meet them, they're, they they kind of live in this world, but they're also attuned to other things that are happening around them. So they kind of walk or exist in two different reality constructs simultaneously. So is it something like more of a feeling, you know, when you talk to somebody who's a, like a psychic in the, you know, the U S or whatever, they'll be like, well, yeah, I, you know, I see your aunt behind you or, you know, is who's that, who's that person perched on your back? Like what's when they, when you talk about the spirits being all around, is it a matter of instinct? Um, Is it a subconscious thing or is it something they're just very aware of all the time in the front of their mind? That's a great question, Mike. Uh, First of all, uh, Many, many people here in the West that teach New Age shamanism or neo-shamanism, they always talk about techniques. Here's this technique. Here's this. Here's that. It's not about techniques. You're much more correct. It's an instinctual feeling. It is, uh, they, it's, it's feeling through the body, feeling through the emotional centers uh, of their psyche. Uh, they pick up information probably because of their, the, not, not just the neural nets that are going on inside the brain, but the, you know, the, the nervous system is what keys in to this other, other world or that where information comes in. And it's very natural. This is not unnatural it's you don't have to be taught a, a series of techniques it's it's like me saying okay mike well who taught you how to go to sleep at night who taught you how to grow your hair no it it's it's something so natural and so instinctual and they talk about focusing on that part of your consciousness unlike the west where in the west we will you know, we, uh, Western materialists don't believe that 
consciousness is something that is is other than something generated by the brain, they have a very different view of what consciousness is. So they are they they feel much more from the heart. They feel from their nervous system. And and Mike, everybody does this. That's why I'm saying so natural. I mean, I, I know that, you know, sometimes say for example, you're going to go somewhere and you want to meet a friend for coffee and you've never been to a place before this place, say it's a new place that's opened up and you and meet your friend there and you walk into the cafe and then you and your friend kind of look at you and you don't know why, but you go, it feels strange in here. I'm not sure, but I don't want to, I don't want to be here. And your friend goes, yeah, let's go somewhere else. Let's go down to the bar or let's go somewhere else that we know. That feeling that you get naturally, Mike, that's the kind of feeling that I'm talking about when it comes to being in touch with this other world that the Ulchi say is always around us. Those are the senses that you want to use to, to be aware, as I said, to make contact with. So coming off that, first of all, it's uh, um, we talk about being in, t- in tune with yourself, uh, being in tune with nature, you know, paying super great attention to your surroundings and, and letting your natural feelings lead the way. Um, when somebody's going to be on the path, like what does it take? to become an Ulchi shaman? Like what kind, what kind of stuff do you have to go through? Like we imagine, okay, to become a shaman, you got to go through these things. You got to take mushrooms. You got to walk on hot coals. You got like, so what's their process? Only the spirits can make you a shaman is what they say. So it has nothing to do with having colleagues or going to a school or getting training or learning spooky, magical secret techniques only the spirits choose who will become shamans. So the university that you go to is found in the spiritual world. And the spiritual world to the Ulchi is where we go every night when we dream. That's the other world. It's the dream world. Do they have a culture of lucid dreaming? Um, they, they, they do but they don't necessarily teach the techniques like all the great lucid lucid dreaming authors out there that i i highly respect i think i think it's great they they see that as being something natural and even even mike and i i don't know about you but i know a lot of people that have never read anything about lucid dreaming and yet from time to time in their dreams they know that they're in a dream Right, they'll be in a dream, and they'll they'll go. This is a dream. Now they don't know what to do with that awareness that they're in a dream. Of course, lucid dreaming techniques teach people what to do once you realize you're in a dream. How you can stay there longer, or go and explore other places. But even with the lucid dreaming community, especially in the West, not all of the authors, but a majority of the authors still view that as something that's going on in the unconscious. In the, right. they they see that as being a part of the the un, unconscious uh, mind. Once again, like the Ulchi, they do not believe in, as I said, normal and paranormal, uh, you know, spiritual and mundane. There is no unconscious. It's all conscious all of the time. It's like it's like looking at a radio dial. Everything's on there, right? It's like in the old time, in the old days. I mean, I'm I'm much older than you, Mike. I'm in my sixties, but it would be like if you took a radio dial and you could had those little handles and you go back and forth, right, on the radio. You've got the FM stations here. You've got NPR, and then you've got the baseball, and you've got opera over here. You've got this, that. It's all going on simultaneously, and it's a matter of just tuning into, putting your consciousness into one of those particular frequencies uh, to get information. So there's there's no, as I said, there's not this duality between the conscious mind and the unconscious or the subconscious, depending on whether you're Freudian or Jungian in your, in your definition. There's only one consciousness. 
Okay. And so when they get into that, and so when we talk about the shaman in a uh, Ochi tribe, right? how many tribes do they have? Well, it, there are a lot of different Different. Or clans. I mean, you know, or family groups. Oh, the family groups. I think let's. As far as the surnames are concerned, there's probably, probably about fourteen or fifteen surnames, but the Ulchis never lived in villages. Uh, Mike, I was going to ask you: Do you have? Do you under? Do you understand the way? I mean, it's it's arbitrary, but do you understand the way that anthropology breaks up culture? Probably not. <laughs> okay. They they talk about they, they break up cultures in in this way. They, there are bands, there are tribes, there are chieftains, and then there are societies. Uh, the Ulch, uh, the Ulchis fall more into a band group. Uh, they never lived in villages until the Russians sort of forced them into villages. But in the area that they would live, there would be maybe a house and there would be maybe two houses, and there would be 10 to 20 related individuals in that area. And then a number of miles away, there might be another house or another couple of houses with 10 to 20 related individuals. So they didn't necessarily live in in uh, tribes. As I said, they're more band-like. They're, yeah, they're more band-like in their in their lifestyle, as I said, until they were forced to, until the, the the Soviet officials rounded them up and forced them into into villages. So we think of them like that. So everybody's living in you know houses and right. and you know maybe kind of far away from each other right. or maybe you know, oh, within, no miles. So miles away from each other. So when we talk about their religious structure or like the shaman, would there be like a like the shaman's house? No. Would each house no. have their own holy person? No, would no, each- no, 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 no. They didn't. You know, even though shamans are respected and valued in their culture, they take no specific role within the culture ever. So it's not like, oh, we're going to do this big ritual to the water spirits. Oh, we have to have a shaman come. No, everybody does it. Everybody does. Everybody's got a drum. Everybody knows how to do this. Shamans don't have special roles, except the only time that they are called in is usually in a funeral rite. Uh, when and and they're and they're not always called in. But they can be called in um, at the anniversary of somebody who's passed on. And so, when you just talked about the ritual there, and everybody's got a drum, what's the significance of the drum in Ochi culture? Well, it's alive, it's living, and everybody has spirits. Not just you know, the shaman doesn't walk around with his or her spirits. Everybody's got spirits. Mike, you know, they say, "Oh, Mike, you've got spirits," you know that that like you, that hang around you too. And so people are calling calling spirits to join them because when they're playing their drums and they're singing and they're being happy, the spirits like that too. The spirits like to be happy. So, um, and it's also a healing. Just picking up a drum is a healing for yourself. It, it you know, people are their own doctors, Mike. It's, it's as if... When, when any of us gets sick, right, when you get sick or I get sick or we're coming down with a cold or something, we know how to take care of it, right? We go, okay, well, everybody's got their own way of taking care of their cold. You either do it herbally or you run off to the allopathic doctor. You want, you know, you want your, uh, your magic bullet uh, uh, antibiotics or you do this or you do. Right. Okay, everybody does that. Everybody takes care of their own quote, spiritual, end quote, health. It's only when people are, you know, and it's it just like just like regular folks, if you can't correct your illness and you're doing everything you can and you're still feeling bad or or things aren't going well in your life or your hunting's not going well and you've done everything, that's only the time that you'll go seek out the assistant of a shaman. And then what is that the, the shaman call like his or her spirits for you? Um, cause I, I specifically, I know it, when you read the book, you talk about like the grandmothers and grandfather characters that are shaman 
that you met and you transcribe a lot of their uh, direct quotes. And so what would they do? Like if you went there and you're like, hey, I'm sick. I drank a ton of orange juice. It's not working. My spirits obviously don't have enough mojo to help me out. Right. Okay. Then they would go to see what has happened. Now, Mike, they believe like many indigenous people in multiple souls. So it's not a singular soul ideology that you find in Judeo-Christian beliefs. They believe that there's the soul that lives in your heart, which is probably more the idea that you find in the West, right? You have a singular soul. They believe that your shadow that is cast by your physical body, that that's a soul as well. But they believe in what they call the wind soul. And the wind soul is the soul that leaves your body every night when you go to sleep. And when that soul doesn't come back to the body, if something has gone on, when a shaman does their work, um, what they do is they go into these other realms and they go searching for that wind soul because, because it hasn't connected to the physical body. It, it, it has this kind of symbiotic relationship with, say, the heart soul or the, or the shadow soul. And if it strays for too long away from the body, that's when the body weakens. Now, um, there could be many reasons why uh, it doesn't want to return, but the shaman's going to go out there and see if it can find this soul and try to get it to come back so that uh, it can, you know, once again, uh, revitalize the physical body and help to heal the body. I mean, they, they don't view the fact that they heal. They don't believe that, that they heal because there's nothing greater than the body. The body is an amazing, I mean, we walk around in these bodies and they're the most amazing organisms we have. They, they completely self-heal all the time. All, you know, even when, you know, the first part of your sleep is all about restorative health. You know, the body is healing itself all the time. They, so they don't do the healing. They go and find this errant soul that is, has uh, decided not to want to come back to the physical body, and they bring it back out of those other realms. And, and once they can sort of join these two aspects of the person together, then naturally homeostasis occurs. Then the body begins to be able to, once again, repair itself, take care of itself, heal itself. And so when they go on these journeys to find out where your spirit body goes, when they, when they go and do that, is there a kind of a ritual involved? I mean, is this kind of like astral travel or out-of-body experience? Do they, like, you know, when you think about this idea of ayahuasca in Central America and South America or uh, peyote, um, to, you know, to go on these spirit journeys, do they like smoke a doobie or something or is it just um, do they you know, some kind of sacred thing? <laughs> Did they smoke a well, doobie? No, they don't smoke a doobie. They don't smoke a doobie. But that's no, that's a great question, Mike. Um, what did, as I said, what what they do is, and I've been researching this for a very very long time. Now, do you you know the work? Do you know the work of Robert Monroe? Uh, not offhand. Okay, he he did all the work with the astral body. Okay, he wrote Journeys Out of the Body back in the nineteen seventies. I was always very curious, what are these what are these people doing? Okay. Now I've done some research. It, first of all, when they w- what a shaman's journey is in classical shamanism is not some sort of you visualize going through a cave to meet your power animal. Okay. <laughs> But that, I mean, that sounds like something I've read in the book, though. <laughs> yes, yes, I have read that in books as well. Okay. What it is, is that they, when they travel, when they begin to do a healing, which they call a song, they don't call it a healing, they call it a singing. 
they are going into a hypnagogic state. Now, we all, everyone naturally understands hypnagogia. We all do this. When we go to sleep at night, there is a transition period between the waking and the sleeping, right? The twilight zone. And if you pay attention to this particular period that even in the West, they would agree. Now, they call them hypnagogic hallucinations, but they're natural and everybody has these experiences every single night. Sure. We've talked about it a lot with the old hag syndrome and with people having alien abductions and I've had it for myself. If you pay attention, what you're going to get, if you really pay attention before you drop off to sleep, you can see images, you can, sometimes they're, they're gray, sometimes they're full of, you know, all sorts of strange imagery comes up. That's what, that's what a shaman singing is all about. That's how they enter this world is through the hypnagogic state. That's kind of almost if, I mean, because you studied in the, uh, like you said, you studied in the Buddhist monastery and, you know, the meditation into inducing a religious experience that seems to be that they have that, you know, a pretty good lock on that. And so is the singing almost like that, like a, like a meditation or a mantra where you repeat no, the song over and over again and kind of get No, a shaman song is never the twice. Now, this is what happens. The, I knew the way they describe things to me, Mike, is that they talked about this is what you do. This is what's going on for us. This is what you do. It's like falling asleep, but you don't fall asleep. And so my concern, what I really started getting interested in is, is that if this is sleep, how are they able to bypass muscular skeletal atonia, right? We have that every night when we go to sleep. Right, that, which is why you're not running out of your bed in a nightmare or you know things like that. In Western medicine, there is a condition known as REM sleep behavior disorder. And I have come to, this is my theory these days, This is what they are doing. If you look at all the correlates between in, you know, there's a peer-reviewed journal out there called Psychiatry. If you look at all the indicators in REM sleep behavior disorder and you match them up to what the Ulchis say is occurring, they are absolutely spot on. I believe that they have the ability to to be in control of, as what they would say in the West, of REM sleep behavior disorder. Because there's two kinds of REM sleep disorder. There's there's one which is a parasomnia, which you act out and you sleepwalk and you do this and you have no memory of it at all. But the REM sleep behavior disorder, you have absolute memory of it. You're in those two worlds simultaneously. And and people, when they come out of that, people in the West, when they are awakened from that state, they report everything to you that they experience, not only in this other world or this other state, which in the West they call a hallucinogenic disorder, or and their waking world. When the Ulti shamans travel and they sing, what's going on is they're singing out loud what they're experiencing in the moment. There are never two shaman songs that are ever the same because the singing and the journeying are always very different. So they're in that other world describing everything. I'm here, I'm there, I'm meeting this person, I'm meeting these spirits. I'm looking for this person's errant soul, that wind soul. Where are you? They're asking questions in this particular state of consciousness, not unlike what people that teach lucid dreaming teach people to do when they are aware that they're in a dream. So I'm, I'm really beginning to think that it's more uh, a state of controlled REM uh, state behavior disorder than anything else that people have talked about. So when they're walking in the other world, 
looking for the other souls, uh, looking for the lost souls in a healing or in a, in a singing. Right. Is that where they could find the, the spirits of their departed ones? Or is that a different like layer on top of it? Well, they have, now this is, this is great, Mike. This is a really curious, curious thing. Ancestors, they believe that when you pass on, they believe that here we are and we're very lucky and we're here on the earth and lucky us and we get to experience the world for, you know, 70, 80, 90 years if we're lucky. And this isn't existent. You know, they believe that nature is eternal, but we're here merely as guests. They also believe that when you pass on and you go to this next place, that your life over there is going to be there for thousands of years. You know, you're a guest on this planet. You grow out of this planet, but you're a guest here. You're a temporary guest. So this other world, you live there for thousands and thousands of years. When the shamans do their singing, they're not asking their ancestors to show up because they believe that only really special people um, in their culture historically become what I would consider like Taoist immortals, people that don't go on and continue to reincarnate from time to time. Okay. So, and, but they would never, ever call on a deceased person to come and aid them because they would find that um, very rude and very disruptive. They believe that once you pass over and they believe that it takes about a year to make that that transition into this new life. If you were to call on, say, your old sister that had passed on or a, a family member, that what you're disturbing them, you're really disturbing these people because they've moved on to another life. You would be asking them to recall, to come back to a past life that is not a part of where they are anymore. That would be very rude to ask them to start living in a place they don't exist. And what's very interesting, Mike, is that if you look at, and I think the University of Virginia did a lot of research on children that were having these past life experiences and they were, you know, they, they'd wake up screaming out of their bed and they had these memories and things like that. And, you know, and, and they had to, and, and as I said, there's a lot of really hard documentation through the University of Virginia on this particular condition that, you know, that's a pretty disturbing thing. So people that have moved on, it's like you don't call on them. It's like, why would you do that? How rude to want to call somebody back to a former life that, you know, they have nothing to do with anymore. And, you know, I never thought about it like that. Because sure, because when kids remember, I remember, you know, first watching Evidence of Reincarnation. It'll be like a child remembering a language that she had no business remembering or remembering like being shot down in World War II or something. And that. You know, when I think about my three-year-old, you know, being scared of a plane flying in a room in the night uh, kind of thing, you know, of course, it's going to be traumatic to a child to have those memories. And if you're doing that to somebody on the, you know, making them recall something painful in their new life. Right. I, I love that idea that it's rude to call. Like if you go to the medium and say, I want to talk to my grandfather, I miss him so much. It's like, what do you want? <laughs> well, Mike, you know, if have you read Raymond Moody's Life After Life, which is yes. okay. Raymond Moody even talks about it in his book where he talks about somebody that was in a coma and 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 very gravely ill and had this whole prayer circle of people praying for the recovery. And this person started coming into the, the prayer circle people's dreams and saying, would you stop this? I want to go. I want to move on. Why do you keep praying for me? You keep brought, You keep pulling me back here. Stop it. You know, if we think about the Uchi and we think about uh, our society so disconnected from nature in a lot of ways. I admit I'm the most technological guy in the world, so I'm always on devices and things, and I love it. And it's great. But as the idea, like sometimes when I go outside, I'm not paying attention to the wind and the birds and everything that goes along with it. But for this this society that's so connected to the place they've been, and in one of the few places in the world where you have a group of people who've been on the same land right. for so long, when they think about the circle of like, do they fear death like we do? No. 
No, they don't talk about it because they believe if you talk about things a lot, you may call that to you. But no, they don't. They see it as you're just getting up and changing residence. And one thing I was going to say to you, Mike, it's okay to be into technology. Technology is something that comes from us. As I said, it's not artificial since we are a part of nature, right? Technology is a part of nature as well. It's something that is, you know, that, that comes from us. Uh, it's okay. Would we consider a beaver's dam artificial? No. We would, and it's the exact same kind of well, thing. Well, a beaver's dam's not artificial. Do you think there's any real difference between the house that you live in and a bird's nest or a beehive? Not really. Well, the house I live in is a lot more expensive than a bird's nest. If I could just put together a bunch of twigs, <laughs> you would have to pay it off every month. That's true. That's true. But it's not artificial. As I said, it's not it's not something that's outside of nature. Nothing is outside of nature. Even our wonderful, amazing, miraculous technical creations. The only thing that, I mean, if you were to ask the old chief, hey, they all have iPhones. They all have computers. They would just say, just don't be on them 24-7, right? You have to, your life has to have balance, you know. Be on the computer, then go take a walk, you know. Or be on the computer and go out and garden for some for a, a certain amount of time. Or go down to the, the elderly home for the aged and, and help out and volunteer. I mean, that, that's what they would say is natural. Now, when you were studying the Luchi and just getting into it, what was the kind of moment you realized you're like, I, you know, I'd like to write about this. I'd like to talk about shamanism. I'd like to, uh, I'd like to make this part of my counseling and my healing and all these things. What was the, um, like the aha or the eureka moment for you when you saw something or heard something that really changed the way you thought about things, where you wanted to integrate this into your own life? Well, I saw them and I got to be with them with other people. I just got to observe for a long time, especially when they were in nature. Uh, they were, you know, they were a cross between Dr. Doolittle and Yoda. Every time you would be with these people, amazing, miraculous things would happen. And it, they weren't showing off or making a big deal of it. They were just who they were. And I think I, there are a few times in the book where I point out these incredible stories of being with them and wild animals coming, you know, coming out of the forest and coming up to us. And, and as I said, there, there, there are quite a few stories of, of because they were so in tune, as I said, it was seeing them so absolutely in tune with, with everything going around them that when a Taoist talks about miracles, this is, this is the kind of miracle they talk about. And I know, Mike, that you probably have had these kinds of experiences from time to time. And that's like when you get up in the morning, Mike, and you don't have any plans or you have a few plans and you end up going somewhere and you run into somebody and, you know, it's like these these incredible synchronistic events happen to you and then you go somewhere else and then and then someone says you've been thinking about something and somebody gives you that or you go here and and as i said all these events start happening in a in a day of your life that at the end of the day you go wow i couldn't have predicted that and i i i you know i i saw so and so and then this thing that i'd been looking for showed up in my life and then this person that i wanted to make an offer to about something they showed up and said oh mike here you want to do this and i didn't even have to mention it to them when all those kinds of synchronistic events happen that we don't get them all the time it's like being in tune with the flow so to speak these people are there most of the time. And that's what I wanted to learn. I wanted to learn how could I, you know, what is it to go out into nature and have wild deer just naturally just show up and, and get interested in me and, 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 or birds to come down and start talking to me. Um, what is it about these people that causes nature to respond to them in the way that it does. 
And so in the past 24 years that you've been involved with this group and studying, like you said, ethnographizing, I don't even know if that's a word, but being an ethnographer and trying to capture um, this as as much as you can before, like you say, the people disappear. In those 24 years, what do you think has changed in your own life as far as uh, you know, when you started to where you are today. Well, I'm a horrible skeptic, Mike. <laughs> Good. I'm a horrible skeptic. I'm a skeptic with everything. I thought, okay, this is what they're telling me. This is how they're laying out reality and how to be in tune with that reality, which is actually quite easy. I mean, yes, you know, there is, there can be hard things that happen. There can be pain in human life, but there's natural pain and human-made suffering, right? There's a big difference there. But I was like, okay, prove it to me. Prove it to me. I'm Okay, I'm going to just take all, everything that they've told me, and I'm going to start living that way. But I'm still very skeptical. It's like, okay, prove it to me. I'll just, I'll just suspend disbelief for a moment uh, for a number of years and see if what they say is, is true to my experience. And so I did. And, um, and it's, you know, it's, it's pretty amazing. I mean, there's one thing to read the ancient text of Taoism and the great stories of Lao Tzu and Chuang Tzu and Li Tzu and other great, you know, other, other great contemplative Taoist. But there's a difference in having books versus living teachers. And they are my living teachers. One last question for you. If someone is interested in integrating some more of this teaching into their life, obviously buy a copy of Spirits from the Edge of the World, and the link is going to be on the show notes, othersidepodcast.com, where you can find this. If you're listening to it on your phone or whatever, and you just go to the site and you'll see a link to Spirits from the Edge of the World on it. But beyond behind the book, what were like, like three things that people could do today that might get them a little bit of this teaching or ways to integrate some of this culture into their own life? First of all, trust nature. Secondly, trust other people. Then trust yourself. But if you can't trust nature and if you can't put trust in other people, then you can never trust yourself. And I think that that's a challenge that most Westerners have. They have all sorts of experiences yet they don't trust themselves. They don't trust their own intuitive, instinctual feelings about things. Trust what you feel. Act on what you feel. All right. I think that's a great message. And everybody listening, make sure you check out Jan Van Eiselstein's great book, Spirits from the Edge of the World, Classical Shamanism in Ulchi Society. And Jan, I want to thank you for spending your afternoon with me. I really was a delight talking to you. And I think we're going to have to um, come back to you later on and do a little more in-depth stuff where we can get into some, uh, now that we understand a little bit about the people and the philosophy, uh, we can get a little more in-depth on, on different aspects of it. So I just wanted to thank you for joining me today. Well, it's been my pleasure, Mike. And thank you. You are an amazing, intelligent, well-read interviewer. Thank you. Did you hear that out there, guys? You heard it for the first time. (laughs) No. Oh, well, if people are hearing that for the first time, they're not listening to your shows. And you can find Jan's website at 2, the number 2, pathfindercounseling.com, or you'll be able to find that uh, in the show notes at othersidepodcast.com slash 228. All right. So when I think of Siberia, I think of cold. When I think of cold, I think of metal. <laughs> okay. You know, like it just seems like the colder climates are uh, like the perfect place for some heavy metal. So your metal is already forged. That's what you're saying. <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> so for the song this week, uh, we decided to go for something a little bit heavier, up-tempo, that kind of feeling of uh, the chill uh, in the heaviness. And so here's a heavy sunspot track named after the book. The Spirits from the Edge of the World. Show my nature. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at OthersidePodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. The year's almost over, but we do have one more Patreon hangout left for 2018. Oh, that's right. And we would love to hang out with you guys and talk about your favorite paranormal stories of the year. And also with the Patreons, if you guys have any questions for the authors and stuff we talk to on the show, it's a perfect time to bring them up and then we can ask the authors and, and do follow-ups with them. We can also uh, share what holiday traditions we've all participated in because this time of year oh and it's also goal setting time of year that's right so many exciting things to talk about and it's going to be great catching up with everybody and hearing Mm -hmm. about the madness of december we want to make you accountable for your 2019 goals (laughs) there you go so here's what's going to happen if you join our patreon hangout and then you tell us what you're going to do in 2019 and then we get to 2019 you don't do it we will publicly shame you (laughs) so you get at your goals and then we will send krampus after you. That's right. At the end by, of the year. By next Christmas, if you're bad, you get a lot more than cold in the stocking. Um, <laughs> but no, the Patreon group um, is, is one of our favorite times. The Hangout's one of our favorite times. And so if you would like to be part of that, you can join that up at othersidepodcast.com slash donate. Yes. And we have a special shout out to one of our Patreon members, Dr. Ned. Hey, Doc. Hey, thanks for pledging us at the level that gets you your own shout out every time, Ned, because I'm happy to give you a shout out. And so we hope that everybody listening today has a great Christmas. But our Patreons, we hope you have the best Christmas ever. We hope And happy Festivus. And ha- <laughs> happy Festivus to you. And hey, enjoy your Boxing Day, right? And also, if you have any particular questions about this particular interview, particular, particular, particular. (laughs) What do you want?